One of my skills as a husband is my ability to multitask while my wife is talking to me. Uh, I am really good at being able to check sports scores, uh, respond to emails, basically just carry on with life, even as she's talking to me. Um, and still basically get the gist of what she's saying, you know, be able to have like a, a meaningful conversation with her. You know, for some reason, she doesn't find that all that satisfying. Uh, she is actually home today with the kids, so she, she's not able to contradict my claims here. Um, <clears throat> apparently, she thinks that there's a difference between kind of just being heard and being really heard, right, and understood. Uh, I'm apparently good at the former, not so good at the latter. You know, we all long to be heard, don't we? Uh, it's, it's amazing how we live in this age of social media. Uh, we can, in an instant, communicate to hundreds or thousands of our followers how we're doing. Right? We can talk to them about our joys and sorrows. We can complain about life. We can express our worries. And yet, with kind of the media overload of our days, is there anyone that's really listening to us? Uh, you know, we see the likes, we see the comments on our feeds, and yet our fears and our worries remain. Um, never before has communication to so many been so easy, and yet strangely we feel more alone than ever. You know, does anyone really understand what you're going through? Is there anyone out there who hears you, who hears your pain? This morning, we are going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, in, in the Pew Bible, 1 Samuel is found on page 225. You know, as I preach kind of occasionally here at Warnall, by God's grace, Lord willing, uh, I'll just be working through this book uh, in the coming weeks and months, Lord willing. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel is fascinating. It, it begins during a time when the nation of Israel had no king, uh, the people all did what was right in their own eyes, meaning that they all turned away from God. And as a result, they were constantly being defeated by their enemies. But all that is just sort of backdrop. You know, First Samuel begins here in chapter 1, zooming in on the story of a young woman, Hannah, and all of her troubles. The God who orchestrates kings and nations and world events stoops to hear the prayers of a troubled woman living in the hill country. And if God hears her, then maybe he hears us also. Right? That's our hope. Um, I'm going to read this as we go along, but let me just go ahead and give you the outline of my sermon kind of up front. Uh, if you're taking notes, I want us to think about three points. Uh, number one, your troubles belong to God. Number one, your troubles belong to God. Number two, your prayers matter to God. Number two, your prayers matter to God. And number three, your salvation comes from God. Your salvation comes from God. You know, as, as small and hidden and broken as you may feel, you are not too small and hidden and broken for God. Now, we've all come with troubles here this morning. Let's see our troubles in light of God's word. Number one, your troubles belong to God. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, 
because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We'll stop there. You know, the story here begins by focusing in on the family of Elkanah. Uh, We don't know much about him. The story seems to indicate that he comes from a prominent family, a well-known family. And the story seems to indicate that he's a a, a devout man. Uh, He travels every year to Shiloh, according to custom, uh, to worship at the tabernacle with his family. Uh, He he would bring sacrifices and they would feast there at the tabernacle. He he seems to be a successful man, able to travel, able to offer these sacrifices and and feast with with his family year by year. And then in verse 2, we see that all is not well. You know, here in this story, we see at least four troubles as we zoom in on Hannah's situation. First of all, she was barren. You know, this might have been the reason why Elkanah had two wives. Uh, Another way to perhaps translate verse 2 would be to say that he had two wives. The first was called Hannah and the second Penina. It's possible that Elkanah was first married to Hannah, but as Hannah was unable to bear him any children, uh, you know, they decided to, to bring on a second wife. You know, to, to not have an heir for Elkanah would be to see his property sort of given away and lost to the family name. And as years went on, as Hannah was unable to bear him children, it's possible that they just began to despair. And so Elkanah took on a second wife. Uh, We don't know whose idea that was. But for Hannah, this would have been a deep kind of sorrow and shame in her life. Uh, Back then, even as today, to not be able to bear children was a a sorrow that would have struck to the core of her being. Even though, you know, polygamy might have been kind of culturally acceptable during that time, Scripture is really clear about this. This is not God's design. God's design from creation has always been for marriage to be between one man and one woman. And here we see the the tremendous heartache and grief that this sort of arrangement brings. If Elkanah and Hannah thought that things would get easier, things would get better after children came along, they were wrong. Even though scripture tells of men who took multiple wives, it, it never presents that in a positive light. As we see here, deviating from God's good design brings, brings grief and heartache. And that brings us to the second trouble, which is Penina, you know, Hannah's rival. Penina is able to bear Elkanah children. And as a result, not surprisingly, Penina begins to despise Hannah. It, it would all come to a head during their yearly trip to Shiloh that family feast where the family would partake of the sacrifice, celebrating their covenant relationship with God. And as Elkanah distributed the portions of meat, she would give, he would give to Penina her portion and to her children. But then he would deliberately give to Hannah a double portion because he knows that she was hurting, because he loved her. But that only made things worse. And as Penina watched this, she would let Hannah have it. As the second wife, Penina was suffering an injustice. You know, but the text is clear that she used this blessing of children to provoke Hannah to tears so that she could not even eat. This this covenant meal, this occasion for celebration and worship, instead became to Hannah this annual reminder of her sorrow, of her barrenness. Which then brings the third trouble in Hannah's life, which is Elkanah. He is not much help. Uh, I think he meant well. Uh, But I think every husband here has been in his shoes. Uh, We don't like it when our wives are sad or upset. And we want to fix everything, right? Uh, And so we get upset that they're upset. And we try to tell them, you know, why are you you crying? Why are you you complaining? Aren't Aren't you happy with what you have? And that just makes things worse. Elkanah becomes part of the problem. In all of this, Hannah is helpless. Her body has betrayed her. Her 
Her rival, Penina, is blessed. And her husband only makes things worse. And there seems to be no way out. I remember uh, one point a few years ago when I was in pastoral ministry, we were kind of going through a difficult season of life. Uh, my, my wife was struggling. Uh, we were living kind of in the city in a difficult place. It was hard on the family. She was frustrated. Every time I tried to talk to her about it, it only made things worse. Um, if, and if, but then if I didn't talk to her about it, like our circumstances just kept getting worse too. And it got to the point where like I didn't know what to do. I just felt, I felt trapped. Um, my family was not doing well in the place where I was trying to provide for them. I needed to provide for them. I couldn't talk to my wife. What do I do? I'm trapped. I wonder if you guys can ever relate to that feeling of being trapped kind of in this terrible situation. And yet at the bottom of it all is problem number four, which is God. The narrator repeats for us in verses five and six, the Lord had closed her womb. That the baroness, Penina, her husband, all these troubles could be traced back to God's sovereign act of closing her womb. You know, as a worshiper of the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of heavens and earth, as we confessed in the Apostles' Creed this morning, you know, Hannah would have understood this. She believed that he was God Almighty who reigned over the universe, even over her life. But what does it mean that he had closed her womb? Did God hate Hannah? Was he out to get her? Had, he, had she done something wrong? You know, if God has rejected you, what hope is there? We don't know why, ultimately, God chose to close Hannah's womb. We know, though, how this suffering fits in the storyline of the Bible. Hannah was a descendant of Adam, the first man who rebelled against God. And ever since Adam's rebellion, this world, our bodies, they're all under a curse. You know, it wasn't this way from the beginning. When God first made the world, there were, there were no barren wombs. But now, because of our rebellion, because of the curse of sin and death, bodies and minds and hearts get sick. Nothing works the way it should. We don't know the specifics of why suffering afflicts people in different ways, but we know why it exists. We could spend a lot of time talking about kind of the various troubles of our lives, about, about problems with our, our marriage and, and rivals and, and barrenness. But underneath all those troubles, this text forces us to deal with God. All of our troubles ultimately point us to God. We, we, we can't begin to respond to our individual troubles until we have first understood that there is a God who reigns over all of our troubles. You know, one of the remarkable things about the Bible is how honest it is about how honest it is about suffering. You know, the Bible does not deny the reality of pain in this world. And so, even as we read a story like this, if you've ever known the pain of childlessness, reading Hannah's story should be of some comfort to you. Because because the world of the Bible is is the world that we live in, isn't it? Undoubtedly there are women here today who have experienced this pain firsthand. You know, amid Hannah's sorrow, she had no answers. She couldn't see how things were going to turn out. And in most cases, neither will you. You know, what this text makes clear is that it's not wrong for you to grieve. It's not wrong for you to feel that pain. You're, you're not a lesser Christian for grieving over these things. In fact, the God who inspired this text, who, 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 who oversees this story. He understands that pain. He draws near to you in your pain. And our hope is that because God is sovereign over our suffering, he is able to use it for his good purposes. You know, as we're going to see very soon in this story, Hannah's barrenness wasn't just 
sort of this, this distraction from the real purpose of her life. No, Hannah, God intended to use it. Uh, he had a plan for it. He intended to use it in a powerful and loving way to shape her and to bring about his good purposes. And so, brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. Uh, whatever pain you have gone through, are going through, you know, the hope of Scripture is that God is bigger than that pain, that, that God is not surprised by it, that he, it's not just a nuisance for you to kind of quickly resolve and, and move on. No, God is going to use it to accomplish his good purposes for your life. And, and that's true not only for childlessness. That's true for, for all kinds of troubles that we go through, right? The, the challenge of singleness, uh, struggles related to our, our sexuality, physical disability, mental illness, addictions, abuse, and so much more. You know, these and many others are all part of living in this fallen world. What are the struggles in your life that you have lost hope that any good can come from this? Where have you grown bitter and cynical towards God about these things? Oh, friends, I pray that as you read Hannah's story, as you see the, real, the, the reality of her pain, that you would once again dare to begin hoping again. Not that your troubles will all go away, but the, that even amid those troubles, you will see God's goodness. You know, as a church, we want to be a place where we can care for people in their troubles, right? You know, sometimes we go to church and everybody looks normal. Everybody looks like they're doing well. They're cleaned up. Um, we begin to think that church is for normal people, right? People who are happily married, who are employed, who are outgoing and chipper. But, but is that what church is, a community for normal people? Or is the church a community for people like Hannah? I'm sure that Hannah felt out of place at Shiloh while everybody was feasting at the annual sacrifice. Why aren't you eating, Hannah? And yet, there she was with a broken heart. You know, I wonder if Hannah would feel out of place in a gathering here at Warnall. Which means that in the church, there is no place for a provocation, right? We, we do not mock those who are in pain like Penina. We do not minimize people's suffering like Elkanah. No, the church is a hospital. Can you imagine going to a hospital where people are being mocked for being sick or, or their pain is being minimized? That would be a terrible place to go. No, we, we are a hospital for those who are hurting. We weep with those who weep. As we say in our church covenant, we will bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We cling to Christ together. Is there anyone that you need to go, even this week, to, to, to ask for forgiveness for minimizing their pain? Is there anyone who is hurting around you that you can comfort with your friendship, with practical help? If you're not a Christian here this morning, you know, I, I want to speak to you for a second. So glad that you're here. You're so welcome here. Uh, this, is, this is such a fascinating story, isn't it? You know, all this may seem pretty incredible to you. You know, how can God be all-powerful and all-good when there's so much evil in this world? You know, I, I agree. That is a really hard question. We, we have to grapple with the reality of pain in our lives, even horrific pain. We don't, we don't ignore that. It doesn't help anybody to ignore that. But I want you to notice that while the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, it doesn't minimize the reality of pain. No, the Bible is brutally honest about the suffering of this world on a, on a macro scale, right? Wars and plagues and famines. But the Bible is also brutally honest about suffering even on a very personal scale, like the childlessness of a woman. The Bible doesn't minimize suffering. It presents it honestly. And then it talks about a God who reigns over all of it. A, a God who is not daunted by the evil of this world. And the Bible speaks of a day when God will come and he will judge all the evil and all the suffering of this world and, and wipe it away. Yes, the evil and suffering of this world is massive, 
But can you imagine a God who is even greater? Suffering is either going to drive you to despair or it's going to drive you to a God who is bigger than all the evil and suffering of this world. There, there is no other alternative. It's either despair or God. Our troubles belong to God, and that's our only hope. That's our first point that we see here in the first part of the story. Let's look at the second part of the story. Number two, your prayers matter to God. Let's look at the story beginning in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I, all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way, and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Well, the story picks up here on one of those annual trips. After one of those painful meals, Penina has once again provoked Hannah to weeping. And so after the meal, Hannah just gets up and, and, and leaves. And she goes to the tabernacle. And in her sorrow, she prays. She prays to God. The text gives us a sense of her, her honesty and her anguish. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Hannah bears her soul before God in prayer. You know, this, this couldn't have been the first time she prayed to God for a child, but, but here she has reached a new place of desperation. And there's no question that her desperation is tied to her barrenness. She, she's utterly helpless to change her situation. And, and amid all of that anguish, the question is, where is God? Right? Has God forgotten me? Verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, and remember me and not forget your servant. Yes, Hannah's prayer was for a son, but even more, notice her prayer was for God himself, right? That God would show her that he has not forgotten her. So much so that Hannah here makes a vow. If God will give her a son, she's going to devote him to the Lord for all the days of his life. She invokes the Nazarite vow, meaning that Samuel will be set apart for God's service for his entire life. You know, that's an amazing vow. Uh, this means that if, if there's the son, that he wouldn't be around to inherit the father's business. Uh, he wouldn't be around to defend Hannah in her old age. Hannah is still going to be sitting alone when Penina comes after her. You know, Hannah isn't praying that Samuel will become like this famous judge or the high priest of Israel. As far as she's concerned, even if he's just an obscure servant in the temple, for the rest of his life, she's devoting him to God. Because, again, the point of her prayer is not so much for a son, but is would God remember her? Hannah was so overcome with sorrow that she didn't notice that Eli the high priest was there. Apparently, Eli was quite used to chasing away drunken people from the tabernacle after all that feasting. 
uh, that gives you an idea of the spiritual condition of Israel during this time. He sees Hannah praying. He assumes that she must be drunk. And yet, impressively, Hannah responds with gentleness, right, rather than anger at this accusation. And how often do we get angry and justify our anger when we're suffering? And that's not what we see here from Hannah. Hannah explains to Eli her sorrow, explains how she was praying to God, and, and Eli blesses her and sends her on her way. And then notice in verse 18, this, this amazing resolution. You know, her, her circumstances haven't changed. But as Hannah has prayed, as she has been reassured by Eli, she's comforted. She's no longer downcast. She goes on her way. She's able to eat something. Why? What's changed? Well, she knows that she's been heard. She, she, through prayer, Hannah has, has lifted her anxieties to the Lord. And now, rather than fretting, she trusts him. She leaves it all to him. Rather than carrying her burdens alone, God is now going to carry her burdens for her. And she can go on her way in peace. This is an amazing story. Have you ever thought about the audacity of prayer? The audacity of prayer. We believe as Christians that there is a God who set the galaxies into place, who reigns over history, who reigns over all the nations, who is sovereign over every single meticulous event in the universe. And we believe that there's a God who cares about you, about me. Uh, you know, Hannah addresses God as the Lord of hosts. And literally, he is the Lord of the armies of heaven. The, the God who commands millions upon millions of angelic forces, who reigns over the powers and the principalities of the air, that same God bends to hear the prayers of an obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim. And he bends to hear our prayers too. The audacity of prayer. Friend, what, what difference would it make if you knew that the God of the universe hears your prayers, really hears, not hears the way that I hear when I'm trying to multitask. No, but he really hears when you talk to him. As surely as you hear me right now, as surely as a father hears his children, if you knew that God hears your prayers, what would you say to him? What would you tell him? What would you share with him? You know, that's what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God. It's not fancy religious language. It's not using a particular form of words. It's not praying a certain length or getting yourself in a religious kind of state before you can kind of come to him. No, prayer is just going straight to God, just as you are, and talking to him, pouring out your heart before him, speaking to him, using your own thoughts, using your own words, confessing your needs, your desires, your burdens. The prayers that God loves are, are honest prayers, dependent prayers. Not, not prayers where we're trying to like posture and pretend that we're somebody that we're not. Not cleaned up prayers, self-righteous prayers. No, honest, humble, dependent prayers. Which means that prayer is not for religious people. No, prayer is for needy people, desperate people. Even if this is your very first time ever in church, you can pray to God. You know, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, the temptation is for prayer just to be this kind of religious activity that we do, right? We've prayed, check it off the box, and then we sort of pat ourselves on the back. No, but we, and in doing so, we never really pray. D.A. Carson writes this, The Puritans exhorted one another to pray until you pray. That's really good. I like that. Pray until you pray. Such advice is not to become an excuse for a new legalism. There are startling examples of very short and rapid prayers in the Bible. But in the Western world, we urgently need this advice. For many of us in our praying, we are like nasty little boys who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. I think that's a good 
convicting word there, right? Pray until you pray. Don't be satisfied with distracted and rote prayers. No, pray aware of the wonder and the audacity of prayer. Pray until you are consciously bringing to God the true concerns and fears of your life. Pray until you pray. Not because that earns us anything with God. Not because we're trying to wrest blessings from God's hands. No, pray because we know that we have a God who who loves us and who hears us and who loves to hear from us. You know, this is why it's especially important for us to notice that Hannah's comfort came after she prayed, even before anything had really changed, right? She was still barren. Penina was still waiting for her. Her husband was still clueless. But having prayed, Hannah now entrusted her sorrows to God. She's now going to trust him. In other words, as Hannah prayed, prayer changed Hannah, right? Prayer, because prayer is an expression of faith. It's an expression of trust in God. When we pray, we live in the hope that there is a God out there who cares about us, who, who has not abandoned us, who can redeem our suffering. And as we turn to God, God becomes our greatest treasure not even the things that we're asking for. I think of the hymn that we often sing here. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. So to him, I leave it all. Friends, When you pray, believe that God hears you and believe that you can leave it all to him. You can trust him. I think part of the reason that we don't pray is because we generally feel like life is going well. You know, it's Hannah's desperation that drove her to prayer. But so often, if we're honest, we don't feel desperate. You know, for so many of us, we feel like we're we're, we're pretty pretty much put together. Uh, You know what that's called, feeling put together? That's called pride. Right? That's called self-sufficiency. Um, you know, and, and it's called being self-deceived, really. To feel like you're in control is an illusion. It's not real. You're not in control. Uh, apart from God's grace, a thousand evils threaten our lives every day. If we could rightly see ourselves and our loved ones and the world around us, honestly, we'd feel desperate. <laughs> we'd feel pretty darn desperate. Okay, so just to help you, if you feel like you're in control, just a few things you can be praying about, right, Uh, to remind you that you're not in control. Uh, Number one, pray for the church. Uh, This church, um, we've just gone through a difficult discipline case. Um, There are all kinds of uh, burdens and and, and troubles that our elders are bearing on our behalf. Um, There are all kinds of things that threaten the unity of our church. Pray. Pray that God would preserve the witness of the gospel here in this congregation uh, through our unity, through our proclamation of the word. Pray for the lost. Pray for your lost children. Pray for your lost loved ones. Pray for your lost neighbors and your coworkers. You know, you don't have the ability to change that. You you know that, right? Your children, your loved ones, your, your neighbors, you can do nothing to save them from hell. Their resistance to the gospel will continue unless God intervenes. If you want to feel desperation, pray for lost ones all around you. Pray for yourself. Do you know the struggle of sin in your own heart? Do you know the temptations that you face? Do you think you can handle those things on your own? Pray for God to help you, to deliver us from your own sin. Um, Pray for your fellow church members who are going through really tough times. There are all kinds of things going on in this church that that we often are unaware of. Pray for each other. Uh, Pray for the nations. Pray for the unreached people groups of the nations who are trapped in darkness with no access to the gospel. Uh, Think about all the things in this world, governments and wars and false teaching that, that keep the gospel from taking root among millions and millions of people. 
pray that God would raise up workers and pray for the spread of the gospel even here in Kansas City. Pray that we as a church would be a light in this dark place. You know, I could keep going and going. There's no shortage of things for us to pray about, even things that should make us feel desperate, desperate in our need for God to do something. In all these things, we should feel our utter dependence on God. Spurgeon, my friend, was right when he said, anything is a blessing which causes us to pray. Anything is a blessing which causes us to pray. Because prayer itself is the blessing. And if prayer is a blessing, then our biggest problem is really not our troubles. Our biggest problem is our pride and our unbelief that keeps us prayerless. If you're hardened in your prayerlessness, begin there. Confess that to the Lord. Confess your pride. Ask him for help. Ask him to change you, to feel your need to turn to him in prayer. Will you set aside time, even this week, plan? Will you plan even this week to pray, to spend time in prayer? Put it on your calendar, mark it off, book it. Make plans to pray until you pray because our prayers matter to God. We have a God who hears us. You know, Hannah was comforted by prayer. Prayer changed her, but the story doesn't end there. Number three, and finally, our salvation comes from God. Your salvation comes from God. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. If you just turn your page over to chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Well, if the story ended with Hannah just feeling better, but remaining in her trouble, now that would be an incomplete story. God does not merely provide inner peace. No, we serve a God who acts in time and space and history to save all those who cry out to him. And just as God remembered Noah, just as God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so God now remembers Hannah. It's not that God had forgotten anything, but this language of God remembering, it, it indicates that God is about to work out his unfolding purposes. You know, God loves to do the impossible because this is how he gets the most glory. And so Hannah conceives, and she gives birth to a son. Can you imagine Hannah's joy, right? I, I bet Hannah laughed until tears streamed down her cheek. And in her joy, she did not forget how this happened. She, she names her son Samuel. God hears. And now the time has come to go back to Shiloh for the annual sacrifice, the annual feast. Finally, here's Hannah's chance to go. And not be alone. 
Here is her chance to put Penina in her place, to be vindicated, to have her shame removed, to look upon her rival in triumph. But she doesn't go. No, she stays home. She knows that Samuel doesn't belong to her. He doesn't exist to vindicate her pride, to put her enemies to shame. No, he belongs to the Lord. The next time she's going to go back to Shiloh, it's going to be to devote Samuel to the Lord forever. All her life, she's been praying for this son. And yet, remarkably, I mean, what an amazing thing. We don't, we don't get any sense of reluctance from Hannah at all. No, it's the opposite. She plans to care for Samuel, not until he's a teenager, right? not, not until he's you know, an adolescent. No, but until he's weaned. In that culture, a child would be weaned probably at the ages of two or three. I remember when my kids were that age, it would be hard to imagine parting with them at that age. You know, we might have thought that the whole weaning thing was a delay tactic. You know, there's like 15-year-old Samuel still nursing. <laughs> uh, but no, that's not the case. <laughs> um, we see in verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. The child was young. Hannah did not delay. Samuel was so young that the narrator emphasizes it. And yet, as soon as, he's, as he is weaned, she is resolved to go. She brings a bull. She brings the other ingredients for the sacrifice, for the feast. This is going to be a celebration. This is going to be an act of thanksgiving. And yet, all those sacrifices pale with the real sacrifice that she's bringing, which is her son, Samuel. You know, this child that she's asked for, this child that the Lord has granted now, she gives him to the Lord. His entire life is for the Lord. Very soon after this, the feast, Elkanah and Hannah would go home. Samuel would remain at Shiloh. And he would minister before the Lord under Eli the priest. You know, at this point, nobody could have foreseen it. He's just a little boy. Samuel would one day grow up to be a mighty leader. He would be the last judge in Israel. And he would usher in the greatest king that Israel will, had ever, will ever know. But for now, not knowing any of that, Hannah is content. Her joy is in the Lord. Her joy is in God. If you want to read about Hannah's joy, we're going to, we're going to go over this next time we come back to 1 Samuel. Just look at chapter 2. Hannah is full of joy. You know, Hannah's eager devotion of Samuel reveals something to us. She, she walked away from all this experience transformed. Even though her, her circumstances, in one sense, hadn't really changed, she, was a different, she had changed, right? Monday morning, back in Ephraim, there would still be no son next to her. Penina would still be her rival. Elkanah still the same. But Hannah now knew that there was a God who hears her. There was a God who loved her and, and, and had not forgotten her. A God who would act for her salvation. The point of the story is not that if we pray hard enough, God will give us whatever we want. No. Rather, this story is a microcosm of how God will act in history to save his people, to save those who cry out to him. He is the God who hears our prayers, and he is the God who saves. No matter who you are this morning, this is the God that you can know for yourself. We are those who are trapped in this world of sin and death. We are surrounded by enemies. We are surrounded by suffering. We are surrounded by our own sinful hearts. And we are those who have wandered away from God and are headed for an eternal separation from God. But the amazing news is not that we have given anything to God, but that God has given to us his son. He has given his son to sinners like you and me. Hannah devoted Samuel to the priesthood, but God devoted his son to our humanity. 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, the Lord of hosts took on our frail, finite, vulnerable, weeping humanity. And he was perfect without sin. He lived a life of perfect love. 
And he lived out the full extent of our temptations, of our sorrows, all the griefs that you carry, he also carried. And at the end of his life, he offered his life as a sacrifice for us. We are those who deserve God's judgment, but there on the cross, Jesus bore our sin and our judgment upon himself. And yet, incredibly, by that perfect sacrifice, God raised him from the dead. God seated him at his right hand. And now he promises that he is coming back one day to judge all evil, to rid this world of all suffering. Why did Jesus go through all that? Why did God go through all that? Because he loves you. Because he cares about you. Because your troubles tempt you to think that God doesn't care about you anymore. No, but the truth is that your troubles are small compared to all that God has done for you in Christ. No, the proof of God's love is not in your circumstances. The proof of God's love is in the salvation that he has accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. And so even today, if you will abandon your self-sufficiency, if you abandon your self-righteousness and place your hope in Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins. And you can be assured that the day will come when God will, when Jesus will return and he will make all things new for your everlasting joy. Friends, if you're not sure what that means to place your hope in Christ, I would love to talk to you after the service. The people around you would love to talk to you after the service. Please don't leave until you've explored more what this means. We can even set up a time later this week to meet and to talk about this more. For those of us who will trust in Christ, know that God will not leave you in your despair. You know, God may never change your circumstances in this life. Oh, but he will change your circumstances one day when Christ returns. Evil and sorrow will be no more. And even in this life, God promises to work in you, to change you, to, to, to make your joy complete in him. What a dramatic transformation we see here in Hannah. As, something who saw, as someone who saw a glimpse of God's salvation, she knew that she had nothing to fear. And so she could entrust Samuel to God. And so she could obey in this radical way. Brothers and sisters, know that God loves you in Christ. Know that he hears you. Know that in Christ, God is for you. And as you rest in that, allow that confidence to change you. Allow that confidence to loosen the grip of this world and of your sorrows around your heart. Pray that you would find your contentment in God. What a difference we can make in this world if we know that God loves us, that God is for us, that God hears us. Particularly for my sisters, um, seeing the story here of Hannah should make clear to you that your role in God's redemptive purposes is not a second-class role. It's not a secondary role. God has heroic, bold, gospel-fueled, God-glorifying works for you to do. No matter how small it may seem in the eyes of the world, God means to use you, sisters, in his redemptive purposes here in this world. You know, this was true for Hannah, this has been true throughout church history, and it continues to be true today. So, dear sisters, don't shrink back. Pray big prayers. Trust him for big problems. Take big steps of faith. God delights to use you. And that's true for all of us, no matter who you are. You know, in the gospel, God doesn't just save a part of us. No, he redeems all of us, our minds, our our bodies, our relationships, everything that we have has been purchased by Christ and therefore belongs to him. Hannah gave Samuel, but we give ourselves as living sacrifices. Our entire lives belong to God. Our energy, our reputation, our time, our money, it all belongs to him. I wonder, what are you holding back? What are you holding back? What, are, what, what is it that you're not sure if it's worth entrusting to him? Is it your reputation at work? Is it your finances? 
your relationships, you know, some dream that you have. Oh, friends, whatever you're holding back, God is trustworthy. He will not be your debtor. He will bless you and and care all that you give to him. Find a trusted brother or sister. If you're struggling with these things, talk to them about it. Pray about these things. In the end, we want to be like Hannah. We don't want to delay. We want to run to obey and to give to God all that we have because this is where we find our joy. Friends, you are not alone in the universe. Amid your troubles, amid your sin, God has not left you alone. There is a God who is not only bigger than your troubles, but there is a God who hears you, who hears your prayers, and who has acted for your salvation. So the question is not if he hears you, but if you will go to him. Let's pray. And before I lead us in prayer, take a moment just to reflect on what you've heard and respond to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we are not in control. We confess the illusion of our self-sufficiency. Lord, what a, what a wretched, prideful thing that is. And so, Lord God, we turn to you afresh. Lord, we turn to you in joy, knowing that you hear us even now. Lord, that you stoop down to hear us, to, 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 and that you're concerned for all that plagues us. Lord, we confess that you hear us with favor because of Christ, Lord, that you accept our prayers. Lord, we are your children. And so, Lord, we pray that even this week you would open our eyes to who you are for us. Lord, that our lives would be marked by faith, our lives would be marked by prayer, and that as we pray to you, Lord, that you would change us. Lord, that we might make a difference in this world. Oh, God, we pray that out of this church would be a light, the light of the gospel, knowing that we are loved by you. Oh, Lord, do a supernatural work in our midst, even this week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.